0: Well, we're here and we're back at DK Diner with the three amigos doing another episode of the Clinical Grind. Wanted to bring you guys another case. Um, this is a case I saw while working at, at my main site. Um, like last time, it was a case that kind of evolved, which is why I think we're talking about it. It was a mid-30s female EMS uh, brought the patient in. And as you know, the what comes across the squawk box isn't always exactly what you get. Um, what we were told was we have a mid-30s um, patient coming in with a chief complaint of hyperglycemia. What looked like staple vital signs at the time, and of course, when you get to the bedside, um, you know it's amazing what they choose to call in, which is fine. You know, I, they've got they've got a ton of stuff to worry about pre-hospital. So she came in with hyperglycemia. Walk into the room, and the patient just looks sick. We've all been in that room where, um, again, you could, yeah you hear the encode, code, you hear normal vital signs, think hyperglycemia, thinking oh maybe it's three hundred at home, and they want to come in because they were worried. But she was truly sick. all right? She she was altered and just not acting right. Um, was morbidly obese so i already knew that okay if we were going to have to do anything extra it was going to be a difficult day so i you know do the do the bedside assessment do the sick not sick decide that she's on the sick side and go and start putting in some orders Um, as i'm putting in my orders i get a call back from nursing hey can you come take a look at this lady you know as they were exposing her um, before i went and see her again they found um, some additional findings other than just oh her blood sugar is high. So I walk in the room and they say, oh, her blood sugar registers is high, which on, on on that particular place is of the conomer means greater than five hundred. And as we expose her, we find that she has um, some lesions that are concerning for neck fash.
1: What signs or symptoms were concerning for neck fash that you saw?
0: I mean she truly had like purulent drainage from her perineal area. It was red, it was indurated. It was paint out of proportion to touch. It didn't really have the crinkly that you're kind of, you know, that, little that Rice about, Krispies. Rice Krispies. But enough of it, that plus. You love Rice Krispies. But that coupled with her hyperglycemia, I was like, all right, so the, ne-, you know, initial it was is she and DKA, and now it's ishy and neck fash.
1: So th- the picture you're painting to me right now is that this person is s- not not just sick versus not sick, this is super sick versus sick and or potentially going down that road and so this is someone that a lot of things happen really really quickly and you have to get things going now getting antibiotics getting blood cultures getting all that stuff going um support potentially evaluating airway. is someone that is going to potentially go to the or right away because if they are and they need an airway or they're going downhill quick start evaluating that lots of blood work testing
2: i think it's a complicated situation for everything tanner said but also recognizing what is neck fash or that surgical emergency because well it's a clinical finding in some ways. We also all know, and I think everyone listening knows that it's not a clinical finding. I mean, sometimes you'll look at somebody and you'll go, holy, I am concerned for neck fascia, I'm concerned for Fournier's gangrene, these are all spectrum type things because of where the spread has gone to. And in your case, you're describing something to me not not so much because of the physical findings as to what the lesion looked like, but because of the locational lesion, that you're concerned that this is proximally spreading and getting involved into the genital area and the abdominal compartment because just a weeping, bad-looking wound without clearly palpable air um, or obvious rapid spread, and I'm guessing the patient couldn't tell you that this was rapidly spreading because it doesn't sound like they it were much of a history, much, much in the way of his- historical findings, it isn't necessarily neck fast. We've all seen these wounds on somebody's lower extremities and go, okay, I don't even know if that's cellulitis. This could be pseudocellulitis. It could be just horrible fluid overload that we're kind of weeping and we've had chronic venous stasis breakdown or whatever, whatever the case might be. But you're saying, okay, this is there's just so many levels of concern. And now, do I need to get who do I need to mobilize? Yeah. I think that's where you're going with this. I don't know. Who do I need to mobilize? Yeah.
0: What, what resources do I need? So again, I go and I up some orders, add a sepsis workup, um, add some antibiotics, tell nursing to throw in a Foley and call surgery. I have the conversation. Hey, this is Andy. I got a patient I'm concerned for neck fash. This was their presentation. Uh, you know, initially, sometimes with consultants, you can always tell they're not really excited to talk to you on the phone. But once I get a little deeper in the story, they're like, oh, I'll be right down. So the resident comes and sees the patient um, and, uh, and just kind of gives me the, the, even from the door, opens the door and goes, oh, I'll be back, closes the curtain. And then about a
1: couple of minutes later. Whenever, whenever you hit that moment where the consultant resident comes down and just sees it, doesn't have to do any exam and goes, yep, got it, we're good. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a reassuring sign that you have made the correct decision. Yeah.
0: And so a cu- couple minutes later, he and his attending Open the, open the curtain, the attendant goes, oh, that's bad, and kind of comes out, and we get a little more of the history. By, by this time, family has shown up, so we can get a little bit more of the prodromal symptoms that she had been. Her glucose had been running high for about four or five days. They noticed a smell 24 hours ago and then found her in a room like this. Um, and for me, whenever they mention a smell, it's like, okay, this is bad. So surgery stays involved. It was um, a bad smell or the smell is bad? I don't know. that Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, And so surgery stays involved. uh, They say, hey, we're going to, we probably need to go to the OR. Do you mind getting, you know, some plain films to make sure she doesn't have pneumonia? So we get a chest x-ray, get an EKG. And then I go back and check on her about 15 minutes later. And she went from being, you know, kind of that DKA altered, still making some sense to no longer making sense. And I'm like, great. I have to, this lady needs to be intubated because she went from having what was a gag to no gag. Um, and I've given and I've given her at this point. She's gotten two liters of fluid rapidly infused And so she's got some extra fluid that I don't know if she's going into pulmonary edema with everything else into her Sats are starting to drop. So I'm like, all right, we need an intubator So I set up for intubation and then the quandary comes is Out of nowhere, I'm ordering my stuff for intubation pre oxygenator with nasal cannula getting the bags out respiratory therapy shows up Curtain comes open and a very opinionated anesthesiologist comes in and just starts running the room pointing at people telling them what to do and I'm I'm at the head of the bed ready to intubate get out of the way I'm going to come do it and I'm like so how do you handle that here was help that I didn't really ask for who showed up to do something that I was preparing to do and was trying to take over the dynamic of the room of a very sick patient that we were in the middle of
1: resuscitating that's a really difficult situation to be thrust into without knowing that it's going to happen because one it's you're, you're about to do a procedure on someone who is super sick that is, sounds like not going to be necessarily a straightforward airway. Mm-hmm. And so your mind is totally focused on plan A, plan B, plan C mm-hmm. of that and not really letting the external world it's, you know, get in the way. And now it's just kind of being broken open with, there goes your concentration, there goes the, the focus uh, that you were already doing on that. So plus, you're doing a procedure that is literally their entire life. And it's this battle of, okay, my territory, my airway, my patient. But now this person is, I'm a specialist. That's all I do. I'm an
0: airwayologist. Yeah.
2: How come I don't you're know. doing I, this? I, I disagree that anesthesia are airwayologists, and that's the only thing they do. I think they do a lot more managing sedation and sure patient uh, hemodynamic monitoring than they do. I mean, airway, I think, is actually a small component of the job. That's neither here nor there. But let's not give them... I, well, I appreciate all of our anesthesia friends and what they do. I don't know that from an airway management standpoint, we want to give them more more credit than we give ourselves. Agreed.
1: And that's, I think, what it comes down to in this scenario is we are probably the masters of the crash airway, or we at least feel like we are. And in this scenario where it's your patient and you've already set up to do everything, it, it's kind of hard, but I feel like you, what I would like to think that i would do is try to stand my ground a little bit and say no i'm doing this i have it set up here's my plan you're more than welcome to assist and if i need help i i'm glad that you're here i'd love your help then
0: and like you talked about i had, I had a b and c and i was going to go glide scope to start because um, she had a little, little bit of a little bit of body habitus was going to be hard positioning just because how big she was had a bougie next and then ha- of course direct was there in case all else failed did have a scalpel out in case we did have to go that route um, but did, did not plan on using it and my medicine was ordered, in fact, we had already given my induction agent, and so he, they came in, opened the door, started making orders, and, and I said, oh, thank you for coming. So I, I kind of greeted them at the door from the head of the bed and said, I'm so glad you're here, this is what's going on, and then I just kind of explained what, I was, what my plan was. I said, I'm giving Etomidate, I'm giving this, this is my medicine that's gonna be my paralytic, here's my plan in terms of bagging her, here's my plan in terms of airway, and I have to admit, I would had other run-ins with this particular anesthesiologist that were not necessarily choice. But as I was able to explain myself and what my plan was, he said, oh, okay, you mind if I bag for you? And so he just came to the head of the bed and just bagged for me. And then the intubation went great. She ended up being, you know, at this point, we started getting labs back. Her pH was, you know, in the trash. Um, her white count was through the roof. Like she was just super, super sick. Um, called the ICU because the, the OR team wasn't ready. So she went up to the ICU for a little bit and then went to the OR later for neck fash. But for me, the, the key to that interaction was having to interact with that particular person and seeing other bad ones was is that I just really explained myself. And when he saw that I was competent at what I was planning to do, he definitely
2: deaccelerated um, de- his kind of aggressiveness of, oh, I need to be involved. I think it's a great way to play it is that you're you are controlling the situation and when somebody walks in with the plan of taking over into a clearly controlled situation with a plan then it's a lot harder for that person to take control they feel comfortable with what's going on now to step back a second i kind of disagree with tanner in in some ways and maybe with where you're going with this and this is a tricky situation obviously in my department this is my patient this has not gone anywhere yet i'm already prepared to do a procedure i want to do the procedure I think that's the appropriate thing to do. But this is also somebody who very soon is not gonna be your patient anymore. This is going to be a patient that is going to the OR, with a surgeon, with anesthesia management, and the anesthesiologist, who I suspect is going to be the one managing the patient, or somebody you know closely working with him is going to be the one managing the patient, is now in the ED to assess and, and take over care. And it gets into a conundrum of, yes, my patient currently, but I'm handing this off very rapidly to somebody else. And if they're going to do the long-term management and the OR of this patient and the post-op follow-up and all that, in some ways becomes a much more gray line as to, is this their procedure to do versus is this my procedure to do? Now, obviously, you had concerns that this was a patient that was decompensating with altered mental status, and we needed to move towards airway protection sooner than later, which certainly puts the ball in the ED court of of things. But the fact that this is a surgical complication going to surgery, it kind of puts it in the anesthesia uh, and surgical realm. And, you know, one of my rules, and we've talked about this a few times on the podcast before, is I don't like to make complications for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And this patient is already a complication for somebody else, not because we created it, because the patient created it. And you have to ask yourself at some point, is my initial airway management of this so important that I need to do this myself or I am okay now that the surgical team, the anesthesia team is there stepping back and saying, you know what, this really is now your patient. The only difference is they're in the ED versus they're in the OR suite and I'm okay stepping away. I don't have the right answer for this one, but it's a, it's a complicated situation. I think you have to think about both sides of it. Certainly the way you describe handling it is probably the most appropriate way. And I imagine if the conversation went a little different, he goes, that sounds great. Will you assist me in doing the rest of the procedure? You probably at that point would have said, cooler heads prevailed. Yes, it's yours. And, and it would have worked out fine also. But I, I, I do see the complication in this from, from both perspectives. And it's not an easy, this is ours because it's in RED territorial situation, which is always something we need to be careful about.
1: It's kind of like if uh, you worked at a hospital where the ER docs respond to every code and something happens on the floor or in the OR and you show up and somebody's already running ACLS. Yes, they are probably doing an okay job and we're gonna go in there and we're gonna fly in saying what's going on and kind of take over or try to at least. And in reality, it's probably a very similar scenario where if somebody just said, well, I've done this, this, and this, I've given epi, we've done three rounds of compressions, yada, 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 it's asystole. That's going to make us feel a lot more comfortable that the right things are being done, and then we can kind of step back and just kind of observe and then help out as needed, and or say, hey, if you want me to take over, let me know. Very
2: same, similar scenario to this, but just reverse. We have to make sure we're thinking about the bigger picture, too. There's the battle and there's the war, right? And in the hospital were very territorial Mm -hmm. sometimes that's appropriate sometimes it's not appropriate and in this situation it sounds like things went really well but had the situation escalated and you're just like you know no, i'm doing it get out leave you might have won the battle but the war is what you're really worried about in the sense that when you need that anesthesiologist or you need the anesthesia team to come down to the ed and now they have a bad taste in their mouth because of that interaction they're not going to be as helpful next time when you really need them where if you just give them a little space maybe in a situation where they're not not needed and this could go with any consultant anybody coming out in the ed but it's not unreasonable and you can kind of give them what they what they want so next time when you actually need them they're there for you and again i'm not advocating giving too much, but there has to be a proper give and take so that when the situation arises and you need that that specific consultant or that specific consultant team, that they're going to be available, engaged, and wanting and willing to help as opposed to turned off because of bad interactions.
1: Emergency medicine is the chameleon of all medicine because we have to have a little bit of knowledge about everything, but we're also the chameleons of the personal world too. We have to be able to interact with all different kinds of personalities and get them to do what we need them to do and also get their help when they
2: when we need their help yeah we're, we're the jacks of all but the masters is resuscitation wow sure. that was a hard word for me yeah. to get out
0: usually isn't uh and then to kind of resolve the case i mean so we intubated the patient everything went fine i mean she continued to be sick um, went up to the icu for a short stay until she got to go to the or actually ran into um, her family in the in the cafeteria a couple of days later and she actually got to go home not a lot she didn't have a neck fash. Um, had to get, had to get, you know, some skin taken off. But other than that, had a had a decent recovery for her illness. And I think the the benefit of all this is, is that about a week later, I had another kind of train wreck airway, where I did call for anesthesia, and this same anesthesiologist came in, and it was nice because I'd had a good interaction a couple of days, a couple of weeks before. Like Drew said, I called him for help. He was more than willing to come help me. I said, hey, this is my problem. This is what I've done. He trusted me because we had had that good interaction, and then he was more than willing to help and take over in a in a situation where I was definitely over my head. Um, so I think, to me, the, the big take-home is, is that, like Drew said, that you have to pick battles. Um, and these sometimes patient care isn't just about you taking care of the patient. Um, it's about making sure that all the resources are available. And sometimes we're not the best resource. And you have to have both the foresight and the, the willingness to realize that.
2: And I think resources is where you nailed it. I had a similar interaction with anesthesia, and this is not an anesthesia thing, where I had a trach that was being very complicated for me and i am not the master of all trachs. and unfortunately it was after hours so a lot of our teams have gone but the facility i was at had 24-hour anesthesia cover so we called them down to the or and initially they were very standoff what do you want me to do they already have a trach they already have definitive airway management blah 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 and i said i understand all that but this is a complicated trach patient who i'm having difficulty ventilating i am not a professional trach management person i have pulmonology who put the trach in but I just want one you to know about this patient so if this patient goes downhill we are not having the catch-up conversation yeah. at that time we're having the conversation now and I'm really just looking for some help troubleshooting and initially the conversation started is is kind of very stand and, and and almost aggressive as to why are you calling me and as soon as I explained the situation and why I had called them and and was able to show them the patient. They were incredibly helpful and understanding and said, yeah, thanks, thanks for letting us know about it. Here's what we would do to troubleshoot. Hopefully it doesn't get to the point that you have to call us back. I felt much better. They felt better. The whole situation got diffused very quickly, and and it was a beneficial conversation to have. But there was that initial tension uh, right from the start. And again, it it just all goes back to explaining why and what you're doing.
1: Some of this stuff sounds like it uh, could be this this scenario would have been improved overall if we have interactions with these people outside of phone calls. And there, there was an interesting article recently that I read about the doctor's lounge and how that is becoming having a little bit of a revival part of it because of wellness, but also because there's a lot of information out there that says just interacting with these people face to face so that they know who you are makes things much different overall for people. And that ability to say, Oh yeah, this is the guy that I chatted with about sports three days ago is a totally different scenario than this is a stranger that's calling me in the middle of the night asking for help on something I have no idea what they're
2: talking about. Andy, thanks for a good case. Yeah, no, thanks. Alright friends, well as always if you like what we're doing with the Clinical Grind, please be sure to give us some feedback. You can comment on Twitter, also on our blog page, like us on Facebook, listen to us on iTunes, and if you have an interesting case that you want to talk to us about, please reach out because we're gonna start doing some remote recording and it'll be a good opportunity to get our listeners engaged. Until next time, have a good shift. Is that case okay?
1: Yeah, yeah, solid. Yeah, good case.